Welcome to Tone Deaf, a theater nerd's guide for their musically challenged spouse. I'm Kay, a musical theater nerd. And I'm Warren, currently hugging my screaming pillow because Kay told me I might need it. Yeah, uh, you won't need it until the end of my presentation, but I wished I had had it, so you... I'm just going to squeeze this soft down feather pillow. All right, so... With your primer of green pastures out of the way, let's get to the show that it partially inspired. Now, I'm going to say partially because you've seen two other things that are sort of related to Cabin in the Sky. Granted, both both of the things that you saw were derivative... Derivative? Derivative. Goodness gracious. They were derivative works as well. See, there was a hung, Hungarian play called Lilium, that inspired the musical that shall not be named because this is Black History Month and you're not allowed to swear. And the other show is Bleep Yankees, which was inspired by Faust. Darn Yankees. Darn Yankees. So this show is like if you put Green Pastures, Faust, and Lilium in a blender. I'm amazed that you didn't ask me which show Lilium was. I assume it has to deal... I assume it's a, it's a synonym with merry-go-round. Yes. It is a synonym with merry-go-round, which we're avoiding as long as possible. So, in the case of this movie, uh, we're... So, so based on that, I'm like, okay, there's going to be spousal abuse, the devil, and heaven. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're kind of getting close there, yeah. Like, you'll have Faustian bargains, but you'll also have sort of the, uh going like dying and then being able to go fix your mistakes from carousel slash lilium and then you have a lot of the uh i used to beat my wife and now that i'm dead i feel bad about it because i'm facing consequences for my actions so please send me back down to earth so that i can somehow not beat my wife and fix my past transgressions thank you with this he doesn't beat his wife but he's anyway uh we'll we'll get to it we'll get to I'm it sorry you're fine so i'm just so eager to talk about <laughs> spousal abuse in in the case of this movie we're also adding in a sprinkle of a tone-deaf alumnus lena horn <gasps> in fact this movie is technically her first major hollywood role with stormy weather being released later this same year i like lena horn i do too in this role she will be the lola of the story with Eddie Rochester Anderson playing the Little Joe, like Shoeless Joe in Bleep Yankees, mm. and Ethel Waters will be playing his wife Petunia, who's like Joe's wife in Bleep Yankees. Uh, we also have the return of Rex Ingram in his prime as Lucifer Jr., who's the Applegate of this. Interesting. So not yes. Lucifer, but Lucifer Jr. <laughs> yes. Um, Isn't that Damien? Uh, Damien? Depends Put on Put the dog who's, down, Damien. Depends on who's... Telling the story? Telling the story, yeah. If we're talking about The Omen, it's Damien. But uh, this show was basically the vehicle for a bunch of great black actors of the 1940s and was also the first all-black Hollywood film to be released after Green Pastures. Albeit the box office wasn't as high as it was for Green Pastures, only making MGM $1,953,000, but it's still a big deal. And this is another exception to the rule because the book of the musical is written by Lynn Root, who was white. The lyrics are by John Latouche, who is white. And the music is by Vernon Duke, who was... Any guesses? Black. 
white. Oh. All three were white. Again, with this and green pastures, I'm making this an exception to the rule because it's still important to discuss the places in history that these shows occupy. Um, because it's still really important to see Hollywood's representations at the time um, and to know where we've come from with these representations. Uh, that it, it helps you get a context of things and to see the actual progress that's been made. Uh, there's a thesis that I'm using for some of the quotes in this episode called Beyond Racial Stereotypes, Subversive Subtext and Cabin in the Sky by Kate Marie Weber, um, as well as some other articles and IMDb for bits that won't be covered in the articles and the thesis. Another Weber. <laughs> it might be Weber, but it, it, yeah, it might be Weber, actually. 1B or 2. 1B, so it's Weber. It's, yeah, probably Weber. So uh, Lynn Root wrote the script and presented it to George Balanchine as director. MGM's publishing wing is also responsible for producing the libretto, but to make it a musical, they needed to get themselves a composer. So first... Lynn Root approaches Vernon Duke, who says, On reading the script, my first impulse was to turn it down, because as much as I ad admired the Negro race and its musical gifts, I didn't think myself sufficiently attuned to Negro folklore. Hmm. But later he agrees, because Gershwin, another white person who will cover at a later date because he wrote a lot of music and shows that would be performed by black artists, and E.Y. Harburg, composer for Wizard of Oz, both turned it down. Gershwin was busy, and Harburg felt he couldn't write the appropriate music, which, yeah, I kind of agree there. Uh, Harburg did write Ain't It the Truth for the film, but it was cut and later reused for a one-reel called Studio Visit, uh, and that has Lena Horne singing the song in a bathtub. He also mm -hmm. later will show up when we cover Finian's Rainbow and revisit Gay Puri, the weird cat movie mm -hmm. um, that I really like. So, on... To add, uh, Duke was not on the shortlist for MGM because the publishing head had said, I don't need you for colored shows. For those, I already have the right Duke, Ellington. So there's a little bit of that there, too, uh, going on. And according to this essay, Vernon Duke chose lyricist Johnny Latouche to join him. And so they go to Virginia Beach to try and... Actually, I will quote this part of the essay because I facepalmed so hard. Oh, boy. According to Duke, he and Latouche went there hoping to absorb the aspects of the local African-American culture. But in the end, they decided to stay away from pedantic authenticity and write our own kind of colored songs. Oh. <laughs> I have so many warring feelings because in my mind after reading that because like I still like the music for Cabin in the Sky but, but that's wow that's such a slap yeah that that's was such like a, a slap wow that's, really that's really? such a backhand that made me so grumpy so there were clashes in the original production of the stage version because of the language and culture barriers between the aforementioned Russian trio of Latouche, uh, Root, and Duke, as, and the cast, uh, with George Ross of the Telegram saying, Pit a threesome of turbulent Russians against a tempestuous cast of Negro players from Harlem, and what have you got? Well, in this instance, it's a lingual ruckus approaching Bedlam. 
And interesting yeah. definition. Yeah, because you know Russian folks weren't necessarily white at the time either, so yeah. it's sort of a <laughs> look at me. I almost swore. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. Just a ruckus apo- approaching chaos. You know, yeah. Just, it's a it's a very it's a very telling mm-hmm. response. Oh, there's gonna be some more telling responses in this. So, um, but there was communication between Vernon Duke and the cast, specifically with Banff Ethel, Ethel Waters, and she was the reason that the song "Take a Chance on Love," which critic Brooks Atkinson stated Ethel Waters stood that song on the head at the last er, last evening and ought to receive a Congressional Medal by way of reward. Uh, it basically, like this song made the show what it was and made it stand out. And that is because Vernon Duke actually started listening to the black talent, including Ethel Waters, who was kind of the what who was kind of a bit of the lead here with like, no, I'm going to go talk to him and I'm going to make sure that things are done right. And I'm going to make sure that we're taken care of. And again, friggin' love Ethel Waters. Uh, I want to cover her some more later at some point. So our Broadway cast was Petunia, played by Ethel Waters. Uh, Dooley Wilson played Little Joe. Uh, Rex Ingram played Lucifer Jr. Catherine Dunham played Georgia Brown. Uh, Georgia Brown is Lena Horne's character in the movie. And Catherine Dunham was an amazing choreographer, dancer, and activist that we'll need to cover at some point. Uh, we have Todd Duncan as Laud's general. Uh, Milton Williams as Fleetfoot, Louis Louis Sharp as Dr. Jones, J. Lewis Johnson as John Henry, Georgia Burke as Lily, uh, Dick Campbell as Domino Johnson, and Henio (laughs) Moser Harris as the Imps, and let's see, J. Rosamond Johnson as Brother Green. So... Cabin in the Sky, the musical, opened on October 25th of 1940 at the then-named Martin Beck Theater, which is now the Al Hirschfeld Theater, and ran until March 8th of 1941. Then comes the movie! (laughs) So, this movie was made possible by FDR in a way, and I do need to write an episode about this, and I keep telling myself I need to sit down and do it, But Roosevelt's administration had an emphasis in the New Deal on creating jobs for black people and other minorities, including in theater and film. And there are a lot of things that were not great in uh, the policies at the time, but there are these incremental movements in the New Deal that do help. And uh, I want to say that the... Alvin Ailey dance theater is part of that, but it's been a while, so that will be in a future episode, uh, either later this year or into next year. Uh, But during this time, there was also pressure from the NAACP and other organizations to put forth better representation of black people and better treatment. Uh, NAACP Secretary Secretary Walter White, not that Walter White, 
spoke at the MPPA, Motion Picture Producers Association, at their national convention, calling for an end to racial stereotyping and greater participation by black workers in Hollywood craft unions. And it worked for a little while. <laughs> uh, so after he does this talk basically saying, hey, you need to do better by your black actors, black producers, everything, uh, we have Arthur Freed, who you may remember from... Uh, Gabadaga. Uh, um... I know, I know, it's on the singing in the rain. Yes. He produced Singing in the Rain. <laughs> oh, man. Making me pull back to episode three, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Freed signed on to produce this, having successfully produced shows like Babes in Arms and Saving Wizard of Oz by making the most iconic song in the show stay in the film. Yes, Freed is the reason we still have Over the Rainbow. That would have gotten taken out. Wow. Yeah. Man, a lot of executives have bad decisions. Yeah, and Freed actually does a lot of stuff for this movie that is just amazing. So, huh, Freed brought in Vincent Minnelli to direct. Yes, that Vincent Minnelli. I'm having a hard time recalling a Vincent Minnelli. Liza Minnelli's dad. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. This was actually his first film to direct. Yes. So Freed fought to have this first-time director, and then he had to fight for a bigger budget for the film. Because they were just sort of like, whatever with yeah. this. And well, there's black people. We don't need to give them money. Exactly. Exactly. And then Minnelli had to fight for better set design, because originally they made the lead character's cabin just look like this mess. Like, run down and just you know just nasty and it's like you know there's probably no amount there's probably no small amount of intentional mm -hmm. sabotage because if they can make these quote-unquote black shows look bad or not perform well then they can just point to it and go exactly See, this is why we can't have them in hollywood exactly because their stuff is bad like it's it's that it's that self-fulfilling prophecy well actually that's not quite self-fulfilling prophecy it's in intentional manipulation of the situation in order yes. to present a false narrative. Absolutely. And uh, he also took some creative choices with this. He used sepia tone instead of black and white. I love sepia tone. Yes. Much better than black and white. completely changes the, the... The feel. Yeah. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, I think the version that we have is a black and white kinescope because uh, they didn't re-release the sepia tone until much later. Library of Congress, I might, I think it was, uh, finally made the sepia tone available 
but the version that everyone gets on DVD is in black and white, so ah. that would be a kinescope, most likely. So Sepia Tone was just for the theater release? Yeah, for the theater release. Um, give us the Sepia Tone release, you cowards! <laughs> anyway. Do um, it! <laughs> he also uses dissolves rather than fade-outs, so... Fade outs, you would have it fade to a blank image and then fade into something else. This, he has it dissolve from one image to the next, which is something that has fallen out of use in film for the most part because uh, part of it is due to the French New Wave movement, and the other reason is because with color tones, it's harder to have a fade out happen and not have this nasty looking mess in the middle when you have. Uh, the two scenes fading into each other. Whereas with black and white and sepia tone, it's easy to just sort of have the same tones matching across. Yeah, less chromatic to mess Yeah, up. that's why jump cuts are more common, fade to black is more common, stuff like that. Uh, film nerd stuff aside, Minnelli now had to assemble his cast. He went to Lena Horne for Georgia Brown, and she signed on excitedly because Cabin in the Sky... Uh, Ethel Waters returned as Petunia, Rex Ingram returned as Lucifer Jr. because he hadn't had 1948 happen to him yet, <laughs> and Minnelli really, really wanted Dooley Wilson back as Little Joe, but he lost that fight. So is 48 when he got arrested yes. for... Uh, okay. Yes, 48 was when he had his arrest for making bad choices, making stupid choices. <sighs> it was a misunderstanding, Kay. According Even to... if it was a misunderstanding, that's a bad choice. <laughs> you shouldn't be taking a 15-year-old anywhere that's not related to you. <laughs> anyway. Um, so he really... Minnelli really wanted Dooley Wilson, but he lost the fight, and Eddie Rochester Anderson was cast instead because he was more famous. So Dooley got my fair ladied. Oh. Yeah. Um... And Eddie Anderson had been in Gone with the Wind prior to this and would later be in Brewster's Millions, a TV movie version of Green Pastures. Uh, he was in It's a Mad, 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 Mad World as a cab driver. Oh, okay. Um, and the only other thing that I can think of that you may have seen him in was when he did voices as Bobby Joe Mason in the Scooby-Doo episodes with the Harlem Globetrotters as well as the Harlem Globetrotters TV series. Those were also his last two credits. So it's kind of like um, Boris Korloff having one of his last credits be Kirby the Vacuum <laughs> in the sequels to Brave Little Toaster. It's that sort of thing. Um, Butterfly McQueen is also in this, and you've seen Gone with the Wind, right? I have not. It never is, mind, It then. is a classic that I have never seen. Okay, you're not missing much. Frankly, um, my dear, I don't give a darn. <laughs> uh, she's prissy in it, and she's also on six episodes of a comedy series called Bella, which I think may have been the inspiration for Benson and Soap. Oh. Yes. Uh, and I really want to watch those. And somebody put a bunch of them up, I think, on YouTube, and I want to watch them because they look very interesting. And there's a lot of powerhouse black women that are from the 40s and 50s era that's in that series in the 60s. Um, but uh, you also may recognize Oscar Polk, who plays the Deacon and Fleetfoot in this, because you saw him last episode as Gabriel. 
He's joined in this show by angel-removing hat, uncredited, himself, Manton Moreland. Angel-removing hat, uncredited. <laughs> He's also in a movie that needs to be added to the old horror movie night uh, se- series of stuff for us called Revenge of the Zombies. Um, we also have the Hal Johnson Choir returning for this, as well as Louis Armstrong, who you last saw in Hello, Dolly. But we know... The groundbreaking thing that you need to know in this. Bill Bailey is in this. Not comedian Bill Bailey, but dancer Bill Bailey, who will do a dance move in this that you will go, wait, it's that old? And I'll let you know when the dance move happens. Okay. So, this cast did experience racism. (laughs) And according to a, a story that was shared on IMDb, during the films, during filming, the movie's black stars were told by the studio manager that they were not allowed to eat in the MGM commissary. <sighs> but here comes Louis B. Meyer, studio head, who hears about this and invites all the black performers to join him instead in his private dining room. Fantastic. And after that, they were all allowed to eat in the commissary. Fantastic. Good on him. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's like these little steps these little tiny steps that people need to take basically people need to collect the other white people Uh 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 (laughs) it shouldn't be on us to collect you Uh uh-huh i that is so fantastic that the boss just was like oh you can't eat in the cafeteria well come up uh have some food with me in my private dining office and then the people being like you can't be in the cafeteria like oh crap the boss uh Mm -hmm. i guess they can go in the cafeteria Mm -hmm. That's some that's some using your privilege. Now I'm not going to say that Louis B. Meyer was a great dude, but that was a nice thing he did. He had a moment. <laughs> he had a moment. Um there are still some other issues with this movie because as much as Minnelli tried to, you know, keep from stereotypes being presented in the film, the script is still written by a white man and this was a white director and this was still the 1940s. Uh, Minnelli had actually made his displeasure with the script very well known, and he was not the only critic. Both black and white press did a big yikes on this. Uh, Especially, uh, there was, even though there was like a little bit of progress from the green pastures, there was still problems. And uh, in this thesis, they actually have a quote from Hall Johnson, uh, from the Hall Johnson Choir, saying, Negroes have never forgiven the slanderous misrepresentations of the green pastures, and when after five successful years on the stage it was finally made into a picture, they did not hesitate to express their opinion, as a warning to the associate producer for Cabin. And boy, were their opinions after the April 9th, 1943 release of the film. Because... While this show is important, it's still another example of white people trying to write black people and clumsily falling into stereotypes. I'll grab another bit from the thesis. This is a quote from critic Ramona Lewis of the black newspaper Amsterdam News. Uh, This is going to be a contemporary article. So she says, It pictures Negroes, heads tied up with crapshooting inclinations and prayer meeting propensities at a time when they are daily proving their heroic mettle in battle and defense plant. Since box office returns convince Hollywood more than anything else that it is in the right, it's too bad the actors didn't have the courage to refuse to make the film in the first place, which Mm. I can see where she's coming from with that. 
And it's such a catch-22. It's, it's such a tricky substance because they want to be taken seriously. They want to have a job. Mm-hmm. They want to have a career. They have bills to pay and mouths to feed. Exactly. But at the same time, by refusing and trying to, to give a, a middle finger to the powers that be, they're also potentially ending their own career, mm-hmm. ending the possibility of being able to provide. Yep. So it's it's very much of like, do I take the degrading job so that I can survive? Mm-hmm. Or do I say no to the degrading job and have a harder time surviving? And in a bit of a thing, this also harkens back to the minstrel show era stuff that we talked about where uh, those kinds of yeah where it's like maybe we shouldn't well they don't quite have those stereotypes in this but more it's the same approach that black people performing in blackface and minstrel shows probably had of being like if i'm doing this that's taking it away from a white person doing it fair and so it's trying to take that agency because hollywood's still doing blackface at this time period and so it's one of those uh cursed if you do cursed if you don't moments in some places the in some theaters the reception was not good because the south and all black films were not a thing to show in the south according to this essay uh mount pleasant's tennessee run ended 30 minutes in because the sheriff was like hey there's a crowd out there and they're getting murdery oh jeez uh yeah so uh it just there's the very idea of having an all-black show was enough to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but hey there were two white journos that liked it in there the were South? two glowing reviews from the new york times in this essay that had me going <sighs> and I'll read one I'll read part of one of them uh basically cabin in the sky is frankly a figment of fantasy no more pretentious of reality than was the green pastures and far from belittling negroes it treats them with affectionate respect <laughs> and I actually like looked up the people who wrote these articles to see now nah, they're white they don't get to say that <laughs> they don't get to say that and well, especially if it's like, oh, well, they're happy with these stereotyped, uh-huh. you know, uh, uh, portrayals. Yeah. And if it weren't for the way that it was advertised in Portland, Oregon, by showman Jack Matlack, I could almost forgive them. But. Did they have the disclaimer like they did in Green Pastures? I wish. Really? Because. I I stayed up until 11.30 reading through the Motion Picture Herald from July of 1943 to corroborate this because I did not want to believe this was real. Oh, this is where you said I'm going to need my pillow, huh? Yep, here's the image. Uh, Usherette's help accent cabin for Matlock. Do you uh, notice something about those people? They are all in blackface. Every single one of them is in blackface. Yep. So they advertised it in Oregon as being a blackface cast instead of being a black cast. Well, this is this is what the uh, the description is from the Motion Picture Herald itself, and I typed this out from the article. Highlight of Jack Mac. 
Matt Black's campaign on Cabin in the Sky at the Broadway Theater, Portland, Oregon, was his atmosphere gag used a week in advance. A week. Jack had the entire staff made up in blackface and dressed in gingham, which drew considerable comment from theater goers. So, yeah. And it's not so much that he was like, oh, this isn't going to... Because, you know, you have Lena Horne, you have Louis Armstrong, you have folks on the, uh, on, on the poster that are definitely black. So, no, he's not advertising it as a blackface movie. He's advertising it by dressing everybody up in blackface. And I don't care that this dude was, like, a pioneer of showmanship with like being responsible for in a way for all of the really fun movie poster things that you'll find in uh your movie theaters like for uh age of ultron how you had that big cutout or movies where like you can sit on a bench with a character or whatever i cool whatever this is unforgivable you know why i don't care about that other stuff hmm. because somebody else would have done it yeah somebody else would have done it and uh, like i don't care that he brought in a whole covered wagon for one movie i don't care he did this he did this and that and we knew at this time it was bad yes they were still doing it but they knew it was bad when they were doing it and the people who were yeah and the people doing it it was Mm-hmm. It was to stick it to And black it was people. Oregon in the 40s. Oregon, which was... Cre- mm, mm. <sighs> you can listen to Robert Evans's podcasts on Oregon and racism, if you like. So, anyway, are you ready to go see Cabin in the Sky? That look says it all. Let's go. <laughs> Hey, Warren. Hey, Kay. Our producer circle just got larger. Sweet! Thank you, Jessica Reeves, for joining Bianucci and Taylor Brandt in the producer's circle. And another special thank you to our stage crew, Reagan and Jasmine Wu. Thank you all so much for your support of our show. We truly appreciate it. This is a Ninth World Journal. A careless experiment with a teleportation device has left me stranded in random places throughout the Ninth World. While trying to survive in these strange lands, I must find a way to reverse my condition. A Ninth World Journal is a science fantasy audio drama podcast. Subscribe to listen or visit ninthworldjournal.com. And now, the lights are going down and the music's starting back up, so let's head back to the second act of our show. So, what did you think of that one? I liked it. Awesome. I, I thought it was it was a pretty pretty good, pretty decent. I felt like the uh, budget and production, like it was interesting. You talking about some of the stuff surrounding it and how they had to fight to get a better set and, yeah. and stuff like that because it just really was shoddy done, mm-hmm. shoddily done. I felt like the production values were better than Green Pastures. You mm-hmm. know what my favorite thing is though? <laughs> I think I know. 
<sighs> so right away, the opening scrawl of this film is better than Green Pastures, even the, even if there are racist stereotypes in this film, at least they didn't open with, black people are dumb, enjoy the movie. Seriously. So that right there. It's sad that that's <sighs> refreshing. Seriously. So um, um, I did like this. It, it, it. I I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of weird because I liked it. I also thought it was kind of hokey. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, kind of kind of dated. You yeah. Know, for I mean, it's nineteen forty three, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is. You know, it's it's old. It was in black and white, but it's got a cute story. Um, it felt a little bit like a tease at the end. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but it. I mean, it's not bad. I can no. see why it's a classic, you know? Yeah, it's it definitely has earned a place. There are things that I kind of sit here and go, about us even watching it now. And, like, you have to tell me what they are when we get to them. Oh, just little things. Like, you have all of your devils are, there's a lazy one. There's the, oh, yeah. gotcha, And so I, gotcha. can, I can kind of sit here and go... See, and I thought that that was just supposed to be a representation that that devil was sloth. And I don't think that they're that, that, uh, I I don't think that it's kind of like what we came up across with Cabot or with uh, Green Pastures, where it was more subversive (laughs) for, uh... So, you, so this one, you definitely, you don't think... I was, don't think I they that's, were... that's true. The stuff you were talking about previously, yeah. the green pastures, there wasn't as much. So we kind of were able to, to, mm-hmm. to uh, philosophize on that a little bit more. But this, there's enough to be like... No, that was an uh, intentionally harmful it, stereotype trope that they were trying to go for. At the very least, they got lazy and decided to fall on that trope. Because I, I don't think that... I think that if they were to do the seven deadly sins, they would have had seven people. Fair. Other, yeah. (laughs) Point to K. Because, which I mean, would be really clever to do. In any kind of, um, 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 well, then again, you could argue that, uh, Georgina. Georgia Brown. Georgia Brown. Thank you is supposed to be lust Mm -hmm. but i don't know and then you got the one demon who might be envy because he's gunning for Mm -hmm. junior's job anyway that's still less than seven yeah yeah (laughs) how many were there of the demons i thought that there were like four or five there were four so you have them and then georgia brown at least that had speaking lines okay fair enough because you couldn't really put a character on anybody else but the that's fair Three that had speaking lines. He had the one that had good ideas and was always prideful about them. He had the one that wanted the job, and then you had the lazy one. If they would have had other demons, then it would have been like, oh, that's clever. But instead, it's like... See, there we go. It's our good ideas. Uh, a, a reimagining of this. You have seven uh, mm-hmm. antagonist characters that yeah. are representations of the seven deadly sins. Exactly. Ah, see, that would be good. better. That would be better. So... Shall I get into it? Yes, let's okay. get into it. So I already read my first note about how there is no terrible opening scrawl on this one, mm-hmm. which is much appreciated. Anyway, so the show opens up with people going to church and talking to the deacon and the reverend about how it's time to go to church and stuff. Mm-hmm. And how, uh, I can't remember if it was the deacon or the reverend that makes mention that the, the is it Jackson's? 
Yeah, Jacksons, the Jacksons. were not at church. Mm-hmm. And the reverend had made a comment about, oh, well, they're trying kind of thing. And so he goes yeah. to go check on them because one of one of his flock has been troubled. And so he's, yes. he's doing his his reverendly duty to make sure that people are 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 being good, mm-hmm. I guess, is the best way to put it. And so the reverend's like, I will go check on my flock. Reverend Green goes to the estate of Petunia and little Joe Jackson. Joe apparently has a vice, dice that is, and Joe makes the comment to his wife that he's taking too much time to get ready for church because he's wrestling with the devil. Joe found two die in a drawer, and now, now he's feeling the devil on his shoulder, telling him to roll those dice. (laughs) Reverend Green comes into the scene and talks to Petunia. While Joe was getting ready. Turns out Petunia has asked the Lord to make Joe lose every time he gambles. So he has no desire to gamble. Because apparently he's got a talent for gambling. But to, but uh, Petunia did not want to make money that way. And asked the Lord to curse Joe with bad luck. Which apparently is exactly what happened. So Joe now has to get a normal job. Like working as an elevator operator in a hotel. Mm-hmm. Which he's telling, you know, the reverend. Like, oh yeah, I got this job. We're working in the elevator. And I'm going to be operator of elevator number two. And da 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 And once I make... What was that? Once I have money from this elevator job, maybe I'll buy you an electric washing machine. Stuff yep. like that. And... But now we just need to get electricity to make it work. <laughs> Anyways, at the church service, it's full of God and stuff. And Joe goes up to be a part of the singing, but he gets man-napped by some of his former (laughs) gambling buddies. They remind Joe that he owes all of them money and they want to collect now. Joe tries to explain that he's busy repenting and trying to be saved. But the gambling gang is like, but Domino Jones is in town, loaded with money. Your bad luck won't matter because you'll be playing with our money and our dice. And don't want you to make, don't you want to make one last chunk of change before getting right with God? Don't you want to be able to buy all those nice things for your wife that you couldn't previously afford? Eh, Joe? And Joe succumbs to the temptation and goes off to gamble. Yeah, I... I think that that's one of the things, too, the the use of dice and uh, gambling compulsion uh, used to be a stereotype mostly associated with black men back in the day. It's one of it's why uh, one of the censored 11 is the censored 11 is because the whole thing was like, oh, in heaven, all you're going to do is crapshoot and all you're going to do is gamble and play jazz and. And it's like, hmm. But anyway, that's that's one of the things that um, I knew it was a stereotype as a kid. Not as many kids nowadays would probably know that because... It's... See, I didn't. I mm-hmm. just assumed that he had a gambling problem like people nowadays do. Yeah. I mean, you you, you know me. I have, you know, mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't go gamble very often, but we both know that I tend to play too much if I do go gambling, so which mm-hmm. is why I don't gamble. Um, and it's so I I, ne- I didn't recognize that mm-hmm. as a stereotype, but that's just me being dumb and innocent. Well, and that's because you by the time that you would be uh, it, consuming a lot of media that had mostly been phased out. There were still like it would still pop up from time to time, but unless you were raised with someone telling you, "Hey, this is this this thing. This is that thing." 
it's why there were a lot of slurs that you didn't know were slurs until I <laughs> until I was like, yeah, the, no, yeah, it's no, fair, yeah, fair. <laughs> Yeah. You don't know until you know. You don't know until and then you know, yeah. the world is opened up to a horrible world of racism. And you realize things are way worse than you thought they were. Mm-hmm. So anyway. I can show you the world. <laughs> All the oh world. my goodness, it's awful. <laughs> Everybody is racist and they are discriminatory. It's horrible world. Don't you dare close your eyes. <laughs> <laughs> this may not stay. Okay, I, I hope it does. That was fantastic. We'll see. Anyways, back at the church, Petunia finally notices that Joe is not up there singing with the rest of the menfolk, and she goes off to look for him. Bam! Bam! Gunshots echo through the streets, and panic ensues. Petunia finds her way to the bar where Joe went to gamble and finds him with an extra hole or two. Mm-hmm. We cut to Petunia, Joe, in the household, and the doctor tells them that Joe will pull through, but to let him sleep. Petunia goes to her husband's side and prays to God not to let Joe die, that he's not bad, he's just weak, and if Joe dies now, he'll go to hell for sure, because he's just ripe with sin. Mm-hmm. Joe laying in bed, alone, when suddenly the wind blows and a horned shadow appears. The devil has come for Joe's soul. Well, the devil's son, Devil Jr. <laughs> and he, pose, and, he and his entire posse of demons, who look like Joe's gambling buddies, they come to take Joe to hell and Joe is in disbelief that he's dead. Until he's told to take a look at his own body lying in bed behind him. Petunia comes in to be by her husband's side and finds him cold. She prays and prays and prays, does some mighty fine praying there, and that praying was powerful enough to make angels come down to be like, Hold on, Devil Junior. God received a special prayer from Petunia, and we're here to investigate. Petunia is powerful. Petunia is so righteous that she has a, a direct line to God, apparently. <laughs> she is a cleric. Yeah, there you go. Pan! It's me! <laughs> God! <laughs> Unless that wasn't Pan, was it? <laughs> Why would God lie? The demons and angels go back and forth about what to do with Joe, all while Junior keeps bringing up other naughty things that Joe has done. And the angels are like, yeah, we know. And even, start, and even staring down the barrel of Hellfire, Joe has weak moments and keeps having naughty thoughts. Angels can read minds, you know, and they don't approve of Joe, saying that he's not fit to be around heaven folk. Mm -hmm. A messenger angel, Fleetfoot, comes back from heaven and informs the others that God has decreed that Joe gets six months to prove that he's reformed his sinful ways. If not, Lucifer Sr. gets permanent control over Joe. Forever! <laughs> Joe is like, nah, I'm good, I'm reformed, six months will be easy. And Joe gets the plot bomb that he won't have any memory of this conversation. He'll go into his six-month challenge completely blank, only having the whispers <laughs> of angels and demons to tell him right and wrong things to do. With a little whistle. With a little whistle. What's that from? Pinocchio. It's been so long it's, since it's I've seen the, Pinocchio. It's the song with uh, Jiminy Cricket. It, it, I was making a conscience joke. 
the few people who <laughs> who get that joke will go, ha ha, that was clever, Kay. Pin- Pinocchio was never one of my really favorite Disney it films. It gave me nightmares, yeah. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Angel General sounds, well, I flop back and forth between calling him the General Angel and the Angel General. Calling him the General Angel makes him sound like just a recruit-level <laughs> angel instead of, like, the General of Angels, which is what he is. He's the Ain General. <laughs> That's pretty good. The Ain General sends Joe back into his body, and Joe wakes up, much to Petunia's gratefulness. Petunia is so happy that Joe is not dead, she sings directly into his face and sings a song about how happiness is just a thing called Joe. Petunia really loves her husband. The song scene transitions to Petunia just singing, La la la, dee dee dee, Joe, as she's doing laundry and other chores. All while the lazy Joe sits in a wheelchair, lazy bum, I mean, he got shot. I guess I already <laughs> forgot that he did get shot. So, okay, Joe, you can sit in the wheelie chair, I guess. Man, you know, this also kind of reminded me a little bit of Sunrise, a story of two humans. But uh, considering that it wasn't mentioned in any of the source material, I'm like, okay, they didn't pull from that. That's just generic enough of a story. So, you know, man cheats on wife, man realizes that he had it good man has something happen that makes wife think that he was still gonna cheat on her yeah man figures it out i think it's i think it's probably a generic enough story Mm -hmm. you know um just if i can connect something to sunrise a story of two humans i'm happy (laughs) so the song ends as Petunia pulls a sheet down off a clothing line, and two mob-looking fellas are standing there, coming to collect Joe's gambling debts. Petunia is like, now, I've never gambled, but how about I roll for Joe's debts? And we'll do the, what's that, how they say? Double or nothing. And they're just kind of like beaming, like, ooh Mm-hmm. And the two gang types are so excited to take advantage of this woman. Petunia pulls a fast one on these two and proves that they've been using loaded dice. Probably the same cheap tricks they've been using to pull over on Joe to get him in debt with them. Petunia chases them off her property with a yell and a stick. And a threat to use that stick. Yep. Even throws a pitchfork at him. <laughs> I love the way she hurls it like you do a throwing axe. Mm-hmm. Like she just full on goes into it. Petunia is the best. <laughs> she is the I best definitely. character. I- I, I agree love with her. that. I agree with that. Petunia's actress was Ethel Waters. Ethel yeah. Waters. She sang beautifully. She acted very great. She has a, a very gorgeous smile. So when she was just mm-hmm. beaming at Joe, she mm-hmm. had this very nice smile. She was a fantastic character. Oh, she was a fantastic woman. Petunia asks God for forgiveness for backsliding, but gives a good bit of a good bit of a line, saying that when you're dealing with the devil, sometimes you have to stab him with his own pitchfork. Mm-hmm. We then cut to Joe and Petunia having a lovely picnic, and Joe telling Petunia that he's sorry for not being as good to her as she deserves. And from now on, he's going to give her everything that she deserves and treat her the best that he can. I mean, I think you're supposed to do that, like, when you get married, but Mm -hmm. whatever, Joe. Better late than never, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
Petunia and Joe start singing a, the title song about how they're going to have a cabin in the sky, which I'm not entirely sure I grasped the context of that song, but if I did, it basically was them singing that they'll be together forever, going so far as to say that they'll have a cabin in heaven where they'll be together forever after they die. Yeah, Am and I that's right? more what Petunia is singing, and Joe's kind of like, I'm not a good enough person to be there. You are, but I'm not. <laughs> Okay, I missed that part. Yeah. Which, that's unfortunate, because that, that theme carries yes, through to the end. Yes, it does carry through to the end beautifully. Yeah, very well executed. So, onward, or downward, as onward, it were. Onward, Christian soldiers <laughs> marching as to war. Well, uh, downward, actually, in hell. Onward, Lucifer soldiers <laughs> marching as to war. Uh, kind of still. The Devil Jr. and the other demons are having a meeting about how to get this Joe. Because Daddy Devil tells his son that if he doesn't get Joe's soul, they'll, be all, they'll all be fired. They reminisce about all the good, bad ideas they've had in the past, like... Old Testament stuff. Devil <laughs> Jr. complains that he's surrounded by B-idea men, because all the A-idea men are over in Europe right now. Take that, Hitler, you dead jerk. <laughs> Anyways, the Demon B-team comes up with the idea to make Joe rich with a sweepstakes ticket and load him up with money, since there are so many rich men in hell. Remember, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. This ends Reverend Warren's sermon. Mm. Anyways, apparently... I'll pass the collection, please. <laughs> this would have been a good time to have the intermission instead of where we had it. Oh, well. <laughs> Anyways, apparently another part of the evil plan is to get Georgia Brown, played by Lena Horne, to help seduce Joe, since apparently he had an on-off adulterous fling with mrs brown mm -hmm. miss brown devil jr goes to miss brown's home and is creepily talking about how pretty she is while she's getting dressed and he sith mind tricks her into going out to seduce joe like he's he's speaking the word the thoughts yeah, into he's her mind. yeah he's speaking the thoughts into her mind and you can see her changing her behavior as she's being mm -hmm. this receiver for for sinful thoughts mm -hmm. and whatnot it's a very interesting way to portray that sort of stuff. Which it was interesting. I know. I'm sorry. I know you've said his name a bunch of times, but the guy that plays the devil, Rex Ingram. Rex Ingram. It was interesting seeing the contrast of his characters mm -hmm. between Green Pastures and this, because he literally goes from playing Adam God and uh, uh, Hesdrill, Hesdrill, to playing Lucifer Jr. Yeah. So, and it was kind of fun though because he he looked like he was having fun playing mm -hmm. the devil. I don't know if he's played many villains in his career or not, but mm. he, he seemed like he was having fun because he just had these big smiles. He just, because <laughs> it's fun to play a bad guy when you're not bad. you know. Yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Onward. Joe is home from work and pouring a glass of ice cold lemonade. I guess there is a thing being delivered and Joe has a surprise for Petunia. It's an electric washing machine for her birthday present. Now all they need to do is get some electricity to run it. Petunia is so overcome with joy and emotions that she cries. Happy tears, of course. And Joe tries to dry Petunia's tears by pulling out his guitar and asking Petunia to sing the song she sang when they first met. If I had not known where this movie goes because I've seen it before, and I don't remember how I reacted to this scene when I saw it, I would have been like, this is so sweet and happy. But since I already knew what was coming, I'm just like, 
<sighs> what do you mean? Just because of how happy and idyllic this whole scene oh, is. Gotcha. I'm just like, oh, this is going to be a, heart, a knife <laughs> in my heart for poor Petunia. Yeah. And we get a very cute song about taking a chance on love, complete with one of the delivery guys being an amazing dancer, and mm -hmm. we get to see the origins of the moonwalk. Yep. As well as a plethora of fancy footwork. Yep. I love tap. Bill Bailey. Bill Bailey. Doing the moonwalk. That was the uh, piece of dance that I was like, you're going to be like, wait a minute, it's that yeah. old? <laughs> it was funny, too, because you're like, okay, here's the dance, and I'm like watching, watching, you know... And then he goes, and he only does it for a few steps, but I was like, the moonwalk! Yep. <laughs> In the next scene, Joe is back at work, hauling sacks of stuff. The workday ends, and the telegram dude shows up to be like, Hey, Joe, you have a thing. And Joe is like, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I don't want it if it's a bad thing. I only want it if it's a good thing. What kind of thing is it? And Joe seems to be a tad illiterate and can't quite read the notification that he's won this sweepstakes. Meanwhile, the angel and devil are over his shoulder, one telling him to throw it away, the other telling him to keep it. Joe ends up tossing the paper on the ground and leaving with one of his work buddies. Miss Georgia Brown shows up a little too late, but is willed to pick up the sweepstakes paper by the devil, to just who just uh, crouches and points to it and thinks really, really hard. And I liked his expression with it, because he just gets down, he's pointing at it, and you see him just squinting his brain, and just, like, <laughs> just making strained faces. Mm -hmm. And then Lena, uh, not Lena Horn, <laughs> Georgia Brown comes <laughs> over and grabs it. You know what? That angel should have just let him take it home, because the angel, having him drop it, and toss it to the side made, made, made things worse. Yeah, made Georgia pick it up. Because yeah. if he would have just taken it, then Georgia wouldn't have had yeah. the knowledge that he had won all this money and then like gone mm -hmm. to him to be like, ooh. Yeah. Could have taken it home to Petunia and Petunia could have read it or she would have been like, let's call the reverend over. And then it would have been like, well, we've got money for the church now say, and the roof. Yeah, she'd been like, <laughs> Gave it to the church. Uh, back at Joe, back at the Joe Petunia estate, Joe is working on fixing some stuff around the house. As as Angel General is like, yes, good, stay busy, Joe. Being busy keeps you out of trouble. And then Joe is like, nah, I'm tired. I'll fix it later. And then he goes out to the backyard to lay in his hammock. Devil Junior laughs and laughs at the Angel General as he points in the distance and is like, I brought my trump card. More like my tramp card. <laughs> Georgia Brown comes in to throw herself at Joe, being all, Oh, I haven't seen you in so long. Don't tell me you've forgotten all about me, Joe. And Joe is going back and forth saying, uh, with saying that he's been trying to forget her, but he hasn't been able to on account of the, uh, how no, how well he the two know each other previously. Mm -hmm. Georgia throws herself into Joe's lap, and the general angel yells at Joe to stop that. And Joe comes to his senses and pushes Georgia off his lap before singing about the consequences, the devil of those consequences. Joe is able to roll a wisdom check and avoids the full temptation of this succubus, thus saving his soul for the time being, and much to the joy of the general angel. Angel general. He's not a general angel. He's an exceptional angel, thus has the rank of general. <laughs> Georgia Brown is like, fine, I only came around to tell you that you're going to be rich. On account of this here sweepstakes ticket you won from Ireland, 
Joe is ecstatic about winning and thinks that this is his reward from God for being a good husband. And now he can buy Petunia all the things she deserves. Which the Devil Jr. is like, No, that's not how this is supposed to go. You're ruining my evil plans. <laughs> However, the Devil catches a break. And as Joe is thanking Georgia for bringing, um, bringing him his winning ticket and how he'll buy her some nice things as a thank you, Petunia comes home to see another woman who she knows Joe has had encounters with in the past mm-hmm. wrapped around her husband in her front yard. Mm-hmm. Angel General tries to tell Petunia that it's okay, but Petunia is already fully enraged and freaks out on Joe, telling him and Georgia to get out of here before she kills them both. Joe slinks away with his tail between his legs, and the scene changes to that evening as Petunia is cry-singing in her house, and it's very sad. Mm-hmm. And I don't like the blaming Petunia that kind of gets that happens on that later because it's like I I I I, I can kind of yeah. get it, but on the other hand, I'm like, but she got cheated. No, she, she knows there's the a thing. pattern. She knows that she has been cheated on yeah. by Joe with this very woman, and here she comes home, and yeah. this woman is wrapped around Joe, and she hears Joe saying how he's going to buy her a exactly. diamond, a diamond bracelet, and a fur coat, and all this stuff. Yeah, and, and uh, even. But it's interesting because the general angel, you know, he tries to use his angel powers of being like, it's fine, Petunia. Mm-hmm. But Petunia isn't hearing it. Yeah. And then after Joe gets chased off, he tells her, you didn't even give him a chance, you know? Yeah, and, and Petu- it's kind of like... So it's 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 this weird kind of asymmetrical thing where Petunia somehow has a, a two-way radio to God and God will respond directly to her prayers because she's so strong of faith. Yet mm-hmm. when an angel tries to tell her, whoa, this isn't what it looks like, mm-hmm. Petunia is like, this is exactly what I think it looks like. Yeah, it's it's so, it's weird. And it's... then a little bit of spoilers, they kind of blame her for things going wrong later yeah. because of this. And that, that bothers me. Yeah. It's one of those things that has me go, ah, bad writing. <sighs> yeah, uh, I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things I do kind of wonder behind this. Well, I guess not behind the scenes, but off off screen. Um, did Joe ever try to come back and talk to Petunia? Because I, when that happened, I was like, okay, in Joe's yeah. shoes, I was like, okay, Joe, you leave for the, for the day, come back tomorrow after stuff is simmered for a bit and just try to explain, mm-hmm. just be like, I know. And that's the thing is I feel like if Joe would have been like, look, I know that I have been wrong. I know that I have messed up. This was not what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Like This is what the situation is. Yeah. But who knows? Who knows if, if that would have worked or not? And It's like they made Joe like really hold the stupid ball more than uh, necessary. I think that it's a little bit explained that when Petunia says that Joe isn't bad, he's just weak. Yeah. Joe does not have a lot of willpower. He's, That's true. He's very susceptible to temptation, hence, mm-hmm. like, why he's got the gambling problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think they say he has a drinking problem, but th- over the course of the show, it's very much indicated that drinking is a sin. Yeah. Uh, as well as, um, um, you know, he's got infidelity issues. But yeah, so it's really implied that Joe is just kind of weak of willpower. Yeah. So... <laughs> Which at the same time, I'm kind of like, you know, that's a. L- I have issues with that because I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, I understand that vices exist and that, you know, addiction is a mental health issue mm-hmm. kind of thing like that. However, 
if you just can't stop yourself from gambling, drink, drinking, and cheating on your wife, mm-hmm. it might be it. it you, you might just be a, a a butt, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it might be a butt. You might be a butt. However, let's move on to the swinging good time at this bar where Joe got shot previously. People <laughs> are there having a good old time, smoking, drinking, dancing, and carrying on. And there's doing, even Duke Ellington. Hey, doing the Lindy Hop, in between being enthralled by a trombone player's shiny horn. Like a snake charmer, the crowd follows his trombone up and down before breaking away to dance some more Lindy Hop. Did you notice that too? Because like as he's playing his trombone, he's like, and like as he's lifting it up, the crowd is like, oh, like going up and watching it. As he brings it down, they all get low. And I just kept thinking of like a snake charmer just making a snake move around. That's the first thought of it. It's like a room full of snake charmers. Everyone is having a good old time, and who should enter this fine establishment but Domino Jones, the gunslinging gambler who shot Joe in the beginning of the show. Gunslinging gambler! (laughs) Domino is here for social purposes and is looking for Georgia Brown, but Georgia is, uh, preoccupied with Joe. Domino heads upstairs to play some poker, but is stopped by a couple of gals who are like, Domino Jones, you're looking sharp! And Domino launches into a self-centered song about how great he is. And how to his credit, as he, and to his credit, the dude has some fancy footwork and a pretty good voice too. After this song and dance number entertaining the masses, Domino exit up, exits upstairs to do some poker. Enter the man of the hour, Joe, in a fancy, fancy car, complete with chauffeur. With Georgia Brown on his arm in a sparkly dress with a feather shawl and covered in jewelry, everyone is all impressed with how fancy Georgia looks and how much money Joe has. Oh. No! (laughs) See, the whale noise is worse. But yes, Joe has a lot of money. Joe is handing cash out left and right. $20 for shining his shoes, money to the kids for watching his car, and money, money, money spread around the club. Domino descends the stairs to flirt with Georgia and asking why she's hanging around with this small fry like Joe. And, Do- and Joe and Domino are about to come to blows when Petunia comes into the club in some fancy club clothes. And Joe is like, what? Petunia? Is that you? Yep. And Petunia is all Petunia is all sinful and here to drink and carry on. She tells Joe that she's sending her lawyer after him for her half of the sweepstakes money. And Joe is like, I don't think I have half of it left. And she's like, Well, you're dressed enough. To, you're dressed well enough to be laid out as in a funeral, mm-hmm. implying she's gonna kill him if she doesn't get her money. Mm-hmm. What you mean? Eh. After what she's been through, and the thing too is I'm marriage. Yeah, true. And the thing too, I'm looking at Joe with with I don't know how much fifty thousand dollars would be in 1943. A lot of money. Yeah, a lot of money, especially if gambling debts are like four dollars, six dollars. But for inflation, I don't know how much we're talking about. Are we talking about an actual millionaire, or Mm -hmm. are we talking something else? Because, you know, hello, sassy pants. Are you demanding loves while we record? She is. Oh, sassy, sassy girl. She's probably wondering where her dinner is. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta it's wait. It's almost dinner yeah, time. You gotta wait until we're done. It's re- not quite dinner oh, time yet. Mom almost made your leg. Yeah. Jump. You gotta wait until we're done recording and then I'll get you your dinner, okay? Yeah. Then we'll all have dinner. 
Yeah, you gotta wait. Anyways, Petunia and Domino bond over hating Joe, and the two take to the dance floor and get down. The rest of the crowd starts to dance too, all while Joe is at his table, Georgia clinging to him to keep him from leaving, and Joe is looking into the crowd all displeased that his ex-wife is dancing with his former shooter. Domino starts to uh, push himself on Petunia, who was only bluffing with her advances apparently, because Petunia cries out for Joe to help her, and Joe hears the call, coming to the aid of his wife. Joe engages in Mortal Kombat! <laughs> with Domino and the two brawl all through the club. People flee into the streets and Domino pulls a gun, firing wildly. Petunia cries out to God to bring his wrath down to destroy this wicked place. God hears Petunia's cries and he sends the tornado from the Wizard of Oz to destroy yep, the club. The same one. <laughs> it, which means that the studio must be must be the same studio. It was MGM. MGM, so, so they just reused assets. Yeah, MGM. Uh, well, all studios did that, but MGM was like, hey, we got this tornado. We got this nifty tornado effect. Yeah. And it's black and white in the first half of this movie. <laughs> People continue fleeing as they bat as the battle ensues, and Domino, fighting the wind, tries to shoot Joe, but he hits Petunia. Joe rushes to Petunia's side, but is also shot by Domino, who then drops his gun and stumbles away and out of the scene. Georgia Brown, however, witnessing the carnage, screams and flees as the building crashes down around her. A moment of silence fills the scene before it transitions to what is obviously a spirit world version. Both Petunia and Joe wake up wearing white robes. Joe is like, crap, crap, I'm dead again, and I've done bad, crap. And Petunia is like, it's all my fault for throwing you out, for thinking you were getting Georgia, for thinking you were with Georgia Brown. And the angel general descends the stairs with the book of with the soul book of spirit accounting and, inf <laughs> and informs Petunia that she's been cleared to enter heaven. It's the How life ledger. Yeah, the life ledger. However, Joe is not so fortunate, especially since he spent all that money on sinful things. Half of that money was spent on Georgia Brown, jewelry, fur coats, and the like, and the other half on bars and all sorts of clubs. Devil Jr. laughs and laughs as he enters the scene, being all, Come with us, Joe. And Joe is like, I don't wanna. Come with me and you'll be in a world of utter damnation. <laughs> Fantastic. Why, thank you. But Joe is like, I don't wanna go. And then we see one of the, then we see uh, one of the demons coming in to inform Devil Jr. that Georgia, Pro Georgia Brown, one of their biggest sinners, has just repented and given all of her possessions to the church. The devil and demons are like, oh no, she was such a big sinner, our evil soul budget is going to go bankrupt, or something to that extent, based on the severity of the context. However, I mean, how bad of a sinner do you have to be right? that all of hell is like, man, our books are in complete disarray, unless we... You have a look on your face. However, Devil Jr. is in trouble with his daddy, and has been demoted. In a puff of smoke, he vanishes, and the hench demon is now in charge. Before Joe can be carried away to hell, he asks General Angel General if Georgia repenting and giving away all her stuff, all the stuff that he bought her, counts as him doing it, and if that balances him out. Joe is all, by my own internal calculations, I think that puts me two cents over into heaven. 
Which I love that. If there was like a, a soul budget, could you imagine yeah. squeaking by on your soul budget to enter heaven with two cents? After this, there is a uh, Father Guido Sarducci joke that I need to find for you. Okay. That is about exactly that. Fantastic. <laughs> it, you know what also reminds me too is an episode of South Park with the naughty nice accountant who calculates stuff for kids to determine whether or not Santa's going to bring him presents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just your naughty nice accountant. Don't take it out on me. <laughs> I just crunch the numbers. Anyways, Angel General yells at Joe for trying to incite the Lord's wrath by getting into heaven on a technicality, and Petunia falls to her knees and begs God not to uh, begs God to let Joe into heaven on account of some of this being her fault and how she just loves Joe so much and can't imagine heaven without him. God seems to agree, and suddenly the staircase to heaven appears, and Joe and Petunia rejoice and head upwards into heaven. They walk and walk and walk and walk, and Joe starts to whine like a little baby about how he can't handle it anymore. And he thrashes and flails, and then the scene transitions to Joe, and it's revealed that he's still in bed, and that the entire movie was a fever dream! <laughs> I... I hate... I hate that trope. <laughs> But this movie was done in 1943, so it probably wasn't quite a trope yet. No. So it's not fair for me to be mad at this movie when other things probably took it from this. And, well, I mean, Wizard of Oz had done it right before. I guess that's true. In 39. Um, And that's, you know, that one is another MGM film, so. And I want to say that it ends the same way on stage. So the stage version could have been taking from the 1939 Wizard of Oz, but that's still close Mm. enough in time that it's an okay, it's an okay period of time to be using that trope. I guess. I I do like, though, and you haven't seen Faust yet, but the ending before the It Was Only a Dream is very reminiscent of how Faust ends. Petunia and the Doctor come into the room and are like, Oh, Joe, your fever is broken. You're going to be okay. And Joe starts rambling to Petunia about how he's sorry and how he almost didn't get into heaven. And there was a lion and a scarecrow and a tin man. And you were there. And you were there. And you were there. Petunia calms Joe and gives him a brief reprise of an earlier song as she smiles by his bedside and the scene fades to the credits. It was so cute. It really was cute. So, yeah, I, even with the issues that are, that we talked about at the beginning of this and some of the uh, cringy stereotype moments that exist, it's it's not the worst thing to come out of the 40s. That's exactly what I was about to say. It's not the worst that I've seen when it comes to negative portrayals of yeah, of black it's, people it's, in the U.S. For the 40s, it's... I wouldn't you, say it's you, positive. You don't want to say it's progressive. No. It's, it's, oh, no. It's less terrible. <laughs> it's less terrible. It's not as bad as it could have been. Because it, it could have been way worse. Because, like, there definitely was worse portrayals. I'm thinking, like, Looney Tunes. And yeah, that's fair. There's, uh... I think that also, probably, people sometimes think with cartoons you can get away with more because it's animated. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Still bad. 
But yeah, at least Warner Brothers owns up to their yeah. At least mistakes. Warner Brothers owns up Disney. Yeah, Disney. Um, Disney just tries to sweep it under the rug and go, ha ha ha, nothing to see here. Ha ha. Song of the what? No, we're we 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 did nothing about any zippity doodah. Ha ha. Disney has never done anything immoral. Ha ha. Look, you get your you get your black princess, but only for like twenty minutes. Ha ha. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm still salty. Um, but <laughs> I just, uh, I, I, when I first watched it, and now I still have these mixed feelings about it because, on the one hand, it is a fun musical. It is delightful. It is funny. It's not. It, <laughs> I, 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 can't, I have a hard time being too positive about it because it's. It's dated, and yeah. it's definitely not my favorite. However, oh, no. it has two fantastic singers in it. Yeah. I mean, it has uh, Lena Horne and I, what's her Ethel Waters. Thank you. Ethel Waters. Yeah. Are both fantastic singers. Their characters are, you know, they're, they're, they're both great actresses. The acting in the show is great. I mean, the characters, all the actors play their respective characters well. Yeah. Um, it's not a bad show at all. It hasn't aged well. No, oh, no. You know. Because of stereotype stuff, as well as some of the the, the material, yeah. But, you, but like you said, it's not the worst thing to come out of the forties. No, it's it's definitely not. And it, this is where another bit of the contrast comes in because I'm more willing to forgive things when it's written by a black person, which we're going to get into at the end of the month, than when it's written by a white person because. If 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 another black person does it, I'll be more like, okay, you know where we're all coming from in this, and you can poke some fun at it. like the the show that we're going to be doing at the end of the month picks a lot of fun at uh, black play tropes, but also it does kind of turn a mirror on society in the late eighties, early nineties, and. I sit here and wonder, what would this have been like if a black person wrote Cabin in the Sky? Do you think, like, in in kind of uh, going with your, your train of thought there, is it one of the reasons that it's, is it kind of akin to, if the stereotypes are being done, it's kind of like how it's, there's less of a sting if a black person plays a minstrel character than if a white person plays a minstrel character? Well, because these weren't necessarily minstrel. No, um, true, but you're talking about how, like, black people would take oh, a minstrel yeah. role because... That would take it away from a white person to do that. Role. Yeah, and even though it still was not a positive role, it was at least trying to take it away from those who would use it as more of a knife than it's, anything. It's else. a little bit of the reclaiming aspect, a little bit, and I think that that's where my issues with Cabin in the Sky come in. Is that if if they if a black person had written the same characters and the same basic story, it would read very differently. And so you can tell that this was not written by a black person. And especially, like, if if you're not black, but you consume a lot of black media, I'm pretty sure that I don't know because I'm black, so this is me talking and not... Yeah. <laughs> like, there, there are things that... Um, I, I can't think of a good analogy for you to explain my train of thought. That's okay. Um, 
I guess maybe when you see oh movies about video games made by by made by people who've never played the game yes people who've never played the game don't know the ins and outs of the story just are sort of like okay i think i can do this or if you're Uwe Boll and you're making intentionally terrible movies eh, because you can talk get about him. tax breaks but in European countries. I feel like that's what is is kind of the feel that I get when I watch some of these movies where it's like a good example of one that you have seen is The Wiz. The Wiz is written by a black person, mm-hmm. performed by black people. Yes, there are moments that are kind of like if a white person had written that movie i and they i probably wouldn't have been as okay with some of the sly jokes at our own expense because it's self it's it's jokes at our own expense self deprecation it's self deprecation but in a way to then like be haha we can poke fun at it but you know, well, I mean, it's it's we can poke fun at ourselves, but it's different when somebody outside is poking yeah. fun at you. Yeah, and yeah. especially someone sense. with more power yeah. is poking fun at you. Um, and so it's kind of that feeling that I get from it of like, especially with the condescending stuff that they had said in writing the lyrics. Yeah, I'm like, mm. oh uh-huh. no, oh no, you didn't. Absolutely. Oh no, you didn't. When you were reading me that, I was just, just oh. Well, you heard me. I had my mm-hmm. screaming pillow. Mm-hmm. My screaming pillow was there for me. Yes. <laughs> but I, just, I, 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 one thing I will say is it is good to see for, okay. And I'm coming from just my perspective mm-hmm. as, as who I am, you know, a 30 year old white guy who hasn't really, who, who's pretty ignorant about a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Um, it is good to see shows like this because it does give perspective on how far the media yes. has come and it does show that yes you know there still is a ways to go before mm-hmm. there is true equality and true fairness and representation however at least it's not where it was at exactly least, at least because of people constantly pushing the the goalpost mm-hmm. you know well not the goalpost but pushing the uh the the societally acceptable terms you know they're mm-hmm. able to broaden that horizon for the yeah. generations that come yeah and so that is good and you know and i have to i have to try and think about it in that aspect otherwise i will just get too angry yeah. at something that is long that everybody who had a hand in it is now dead it's yeah like... it's it's one of those things that like with this movie because i don't want to uh, like i said it's very uh i i have a very split mind when it comes to this movie because on the one hand I do really like it. On the other hand, I know the background and I'm just like... (laughs) Oddly enough, I think I liked Green Pastures more. Mm -hmm. And I think part of the reason I like Green Pastures more was part of our conversation about it and how it may have been more subversive for the times than Mm -hmm. originally thought. Whereas this one, there is enough about it to know that it was still very uh firmly rooted in in, mm-hmm. in negative stereotypes and mm-hmm. keeping people of color down yeah and it's it's again it's not the worst if you're gonna be having kids watching shows and i say kids in the loose term of like high school age too because y'all are kids still um 
I, <laughs> I, I would say, I would say people are kids until you can get a discount on your car insurance and you can rent a rental car. Yeah, so. once once you can rent a rental car, you're an adult, um, and that, <laughs> and then you have the full adult responsibilities on you. Um, but I feel like out of the movies that people tend to do for exposing kids to films with all black casts or with uh like films from this era i guess i should say because not films with all black casts because there are some powerhouses that i still am looking for um but i don't know if 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 you show kids this it's not gonna do any harm as long as you kind of go with some context that's what i was gonna say yeah put in the appropriate context of this was done in 1943 you know before the civil rights there was still segregation in jim crow laws yeah it was not a positive time to be a black person in america yeah you know it's 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 funny we were we're we're sounding like a record you know we're it's not as Mm -hmm. bad as it could have been um, but it's not as good as it should be. Exactly. And so, yeah, I do recommend this still. I recommend it in the context of, of seeing historical yeah. pieces of, of theater film. Yeah. it's Movie it, theater film. It's one that should stay preserved just to see where we've come from. Yeah. And, and I to ca- see where... I kind of feel that way with Green Pastures, too. Yeah. I, even though if I were to re-release it in the Warren cut, I would just take out that beginning scroll. Mm-hmm. Yep, take out the beginning scroll, everything else. Just leave it. <laughs> yeah. And I I feel like uh, that's kind of the... That's the thing with Green Pastures, is that without the opening scroll, it's amazing. With this, there's just little subtle things that don't always sit right. They're, they're little below-the-belt jabs. Yeah, and um, I... I could get into some of the tropes and archetypes that kind of show up, but that uh, thesis that I was talking about in the opening does it a lot better, uh, like the Jezebel stereotype for Lena Horne, who is light-skinned, and then there's the uh, there's the sort of lazy stereotype with Little mm-hmm. Joe, and there's all of that stuff that are in there, but that thesis covers it way better than I do, because when I cover it, the air turns blue. <laughs> you, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I do not have a, I do not have professional speak when I speak about that. <laughs> we become impassioned. I become a bit... And our, and our passions get the better of our tongues. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's... This movie's worth it. Um, I... I would say I, I do wish that there was full video of some of the uh, revivals that have happened of this, because they're usually done in concert. But still, mm. it would be nice to see. I and could to see. S- Sorry. Oh, just to see how it gets reimagined. Yeah, I, I was. I could see a reimagining of this being quite a bit better mm-hmm. you know done in in a different you, you can keep it in the same time if you wanted mm-hmm. but just done in a in a different way you know you know removing some of the the more racist stereotypes you know and yeah fleshing out some characters fleshing more. Out some characters but yeah i feel like that it it lends itself kind of like we talked with green pastures it lends itself to be reimagined it yes. lends itself to be brought back 
Absolutely. Speaking of reimagining things, our next episode is going to be something that we will be watching a revival version of because I cannot find anything that is in the original 1940, uh, s the 1940 stage version of it, and I do not want to read the whole script to you <laughs> because if I can find it, you'll watch it. <laughs> when was the revival done? Revival was done in 2018. Oh, okay, so very... Yeah, it's very recent. It's a very recent revival. Um, or at least this recording is from 2018. Um, the revival itself, there have been a couple of them, but we will be covering the play version of Richard Wright's Native Son. I know nothing about it. There will be some things, because you know James Baldwin, right? A little bit? Yes. From stuff that I... That both I have retweeted and you've seen other folks retweet. He he, he comes up with this a little bit in, okay. in the presentation I have made for you because okay. he uh, talks about this, about the book that the play is based on. Uh, but yeah, next week we will be covering Native, Native Son. Son. You will need your screaming pillow. No, but thank you for letting me know. You're welcome. Oh, my, it's so soft and absorbent, and it soaks up all my eight rage tears. <laughs> oh. Oh, tail flips. Our dog is like, why do you torture dad, mom? Hi. We'll get you dinner. You're a good girl. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we We hope that you, <laughs> we hope that you enjoyed it. If you'd like to get in touch with KRI, you can do so at our home base, which is ToneDeafMusical.com. There we have links to all of our social medias, our Twitters, our, our uh, Facebooks, our Instagrams, as well as a link to the Cast Junkie Discord server, where we have our own safe, our own not safe for work channel. However, I will say, you know, it's it's pretty mild in there, honestly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is. Because <laughs> it's not safe for work. It's mostly just because you know, sometimes we swear. But it's, it's actually been pretty mild it's... in there. Uh, but anyways, yes, yeah, so if you want to say hi to KRI, you can do so. Talk about musical theater or just tell me that I'm wrong about my opinions. I'll probably agree with you. Uh, if you want to help <laughs> out the show, please give us a review on anywhere you get your podcasts. Apple mm -hmm. Podcasts, wherever we'll let you rate and review. We appreciate yep, it greatly. Podchaser as well. Um, if you want to go above and beyond in supporting our show, we do have merch on our Tee Public store. We also have a Patreon, which is Tone Deaf Musical. Uh, there you can get access to bonus episodes and have your name read in the intermission of our show. But anyway, that will be it for this week, I believe. I'm Kate. I'm Warren. And this has been Tone Deaf. Oh, latte's hungry. Oh, you want some yeah, you're a hungry girl.